So um, we're going to be um, looking at a lot of different kinds of scriptures today. Now, typically what we've been doing is we've been walking through the book of Mark, and we will take a specific passage of the Bible, um, a passage of that book that we've been walking through, and we'll just kind of dissect it and pick it apart. Um, we're not going to be doing that today. It's a, this sermon is going to be much more of a topical type sermon. We're um, we're going to be um, discussing many different scriptures and many different things about the Bible. Um, but uh, if you want to follow along, the first scripture that we're going to look at is going to be 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Um, if you don't have a Bible in the chair in front of you on the rack underneath it, there's a Bible in there. It's a, it's a hardback ESV. Um, you can take that Bible, that, that is our gift to you, um, and that'll be on page 1014 if you're using that Bible. Um, and again, if you don't have one, take one, that's for you. Um, one per person, okay? If you walk out of here with two, our security team's going to tackle you in a parking lot, all right? Um, but no, seriously, take that, that's our gift to you. 1014 if you're using that Bible, otherwise we're going to be, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. All right, so... Although it started back on the 1st of December, uh, the, the December 1st, um, we're, we're taking this Sunday and next to consider Advent. Um, Advent is the time of year where we stop to remember the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what Advent actually means. It means coming um, or arrival or unveiling, if you want to get really specific with it. Um, when we celebrate Advent, what we are doing is we are celebrating the coming of the promised Messiah. But notice what I said there, that we are celebrating the coming of the promised Messiah. Advent is a celebration of promises, and that's because we ourselves are a people of promise. For centuries, God had prepared his people for the coming of his son, Jesus. And at Christmas, um, we, we, like on Christmas Day, we celebrate the fulfillment of those promises that God has made. Um, so there's a distinction between Advent and Christmas. At Christmas, we celebrate the promise being fulfilled, but in the season of Advent that we're celebrating now, we celebrate the promises being made. So that leads to the title of my sermon today, which is Promise Made. Okay, And next week, Pastor Stephen... And will guide us through a celebration of Christmas with a sermon titled, Spoiler Alert, Promise Kept. So, now a little bit more about Advent. Um, during Advent, it's as if we're reenacting or kind of remembering uh, the thousands of years that God's people were anticipating and longing for the coming of God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that verse that I asked you to turn to, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, kind of captures um, a little bit of this idea of longing. Read it with me. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit in Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Now what I want you to notice here is that the prophets of old, those whose writings we have contained for us in the Old Testament, were inquiring about what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So there was a sense of wonder and longing that these prophets had. They were inquiring, when is this going to happen? Who is this going to be? There was, and these prophecies were shared amongst the people of God, and that wonder and that longing spread to them as well. In fact, Peter tells us here in this passage that it was revealed to them, the prophets and the people of God, that they were serving not themselves, but you. Peter is speaking to New Testament Christians here. He's speaking to us. He's saying that the prophets were serving us, that the things that they wrote, the prophecies that they foretold, the promises of God that they conveyed to us, they understood that they were for a future generation of people to come. And Peter concludes 
that these things have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So that is my goal this morning, is I want to preach to you the same good news that the prophets of old foretold would be ours, and I want to do so through the power of the Holy Spirit, and to do that, we're going to need to pray. So would you please pray for me, and I will pray for us. Father, as we begin to look at this and unpack this, would you fill me with your Spirit? Would you... Fill this congregation with your spirit, Lord. Would you give me the words to speak? Would you help me to articulate the, the, the beauty of these wonderful promises and how they have been kept? And uh, God, would you open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear the wonderful things that are contained in your word? Spirit, would you be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I was studying for Advent, there was something that I realized that was important about the Advent story that was particularly helpful, and that it helps us to understand our place in the grand story that we have found ourselves in. So by trying to kind of relive the anticipation and the longing of of God's people, uh, we are better able to understand our current moment because there is much anticipation and longing that we experience as well, Um, but we just don't quite know how to deal with that. Um, And and I'll get to that in a moment, but for now, listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, In reading great literature, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself. Like the night sky in the Greek poem, I see with a myriad eyes, but it is still I who see. And here, as in worship, in love, in moral action, and in knowing, I transcend myself and am never more myself than when I do. Now, C.S. Lewis, is, he's known, I mean, he's well-known by a lot of people, uh, for being able to take really complicated ideas and kind of distill them down to accessible language and explanations that are easy to understand. But honestly, if you're asking me, I really think he blew it here with this quote. Um, it just seems really kind of complicated, but here's what he's saying here. He's saying that when he reads a good story, he is able to put himself into the shoes of the main character of that story, and he's able to feel what they feel, and he's able to experience what they experience, and he's able to add those feelings and add those experiences to his own understanding of life, right? Um, He is able to become a thousand men and yet remain himself. You see, he doesn't have to learn through experience the hardship and the desperation, the isolation of spending years at sea to try and slay the great whale. He can experience that through placing himself in the shoes of Ishmael by reading Moby Dick. He doesn't have to learn through experience about fellowship and endurance and pain by actually carrying the ring to Mordor himself. He can do that by putting himself in the shoes of Frodo and Sam and Gandalf and Aragorn. You see, Even though experience will always be the better teacher, sympathy can be just as powerful of a tutor in in teaching us things about life. So back to the strength of Advent that I mentioned earlier about how it helps us to understand our place in the grand story of God's redemptive history that we have found ourselves in. Think about it for a moment with me. Do you find in yourself a longing for something, something that you maybe you can't quite articulate. Like there's just something like out there in the world, but you don't know what it is. Like there's just got to be more to life than this. Do you find yourself feeling anxious and just overwhelmed? Like life is way too much to handle, and it just seems as though things will never slow down, like there's never going to be peace. Uh, Do you feel let down by life, dreams and ambitions you wanted to accomplish that you weren't able to achieve? Are you overcome by depression and hopelessness, unsure if things will ever get better? Or maybe to put things in more religious terms, do you feel like God is silent? 
Are you unsure if he really is truly aware of your circumstances or even if he cares at all? Are you tired and weary? Have you been striving hard after holiness in Jesus for so long, but you've just seen little evidence of growth or this joy that the Bible speaks so much of, and perhaps you know, you're on the edge of burnout with this whole Christianity thing? If any of that resonated with you, then let me tell you, Advent is what you need. Because in Advent, we're able to understand our place in the story. We can gauge where we're at on this journey, and then we can find the help that we need to remedy each and every single one of these problems that we've just mentioned. We can find purpose. Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen, they they wrote a book called The Drama of Scripture, and they mention the power of story in their book. They say this, in order to make sense of our lives, we depend on some story. Some story provides the broader framework of meaning for every part of our lives. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself apart? Our lives, the questions and events and decisions and relationships that fill it, take their meaning from within some kind of narrative. And so in our lives, my life, your life, we all exist in a certain time, a certain place, a certain point in the grand narrative that God is weaving throughout history. And this narrative gives meaning and purpose to our lives and helps us to understand the question of what am I supposed to do? Now, lucky for us, God's story is kind of like a Hallmark Christmas movie. He kind of has a knack of telling the same story over and over and over again while just kind of changing the characters. Same plot, same rising action, same climax, same falling action, same resolution, and, and everything. Just different characters, right? Just like a Hallmark Christmas movie. So if you're obsessed with Hallmark Christmas movies, you can thank God for that because he's the one that they got the idea from, Okay. Um, And if we walk through this story that God has told us time and time and time again, then like Lewis mentioned, we can learn something that can aid us in our own living through this current moment in history. Let me show you an example of what I'm talking about. The entire narrative of Scripture, so the entire storyline of the Bible, And the entire narrative of our lives, the entire storyline that we find ourselves in can be summed up in four movements, okay? They are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And those four movements, the progression through those four movements applies to the whole Bible like this. And this is really kind of just oversimplifying this, right, for the sake of time, uh, but hopefully the point will be easily made. Creation. Okay, this is the story of all of Scripture. Okay, if you were to read the Bible and sum it up, this is it. Creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Simple as that. Fall. Mankind fell into sin and was thus separated from God and subject to death and the sorrow and despair caused by sin. Redemption. Unable to save themselves, God sends his son, Jesus, to undo the curse of sin upon us by living a perfect life, dying in our place for our sins, and crediting to us the perfect life that he lived, thereby reconciling us to God and giving us the capacity to fight against sin and pursue holiness. And then restoration. One day, Jesus is going to come again and completely restore the earth and those who have repented of their sin and placed their trust in him. And he's going to restore us all to a completely sinless state, to the original harmony and communion with God that we were intended to have at the beginning. Now that's the entire narrative of Scripture, very simply and succinctly summarized. But now this narrative is spun over and over and over in various ways throughout Scripture. We see this same sequence of events, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, happen over and over again throughout the Old Testament. All right. Now this is what scholars call typology. It's these many stories that serve as types of the grander narrative that is taking place. And they are intended to remind us of the story that we find ourselves in. And they are meant to point us to the greater hope that we have. So here's an example. In Genesis chapter 12, God made a promise to a man named Abraham. 
He promised that he would bless him and make him the father of many nations. And from the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel was born. God created a covenant with Abraham. And out of that covenant relationship, God created for him a nation of people that would be his people and to whom he would be their God. And he made several promises to Abraham that were passed down to the nation of Israel. He promised to bless them. He promised to protect them, to preserve them, to provide for them, and to bless the world through them. He promised to give them a land of their own that they would one day inherit and possess, and then they would prosper and live abundantly. But that nation of people quickly fell into temptation and sin due to jealousy and envy, and they found themselves disobeying God's command. Before they know it, they are enslaved in Egypt. This is the fall. Now, this segment of Israel's history is the most intense and prolonged movement of this mini-narrative that we're discussing here. For 430 years, the people of Israel were enslaved by an incredibly brutal regime. They suffered for a long time, but it was their sin that led them there. And then after some time, God raised up a man named Moses who delivers the people out of the land of Egypt through a mighty display of God's power God inflicts Egypt with ten plagues that finally convince Pharaoh to let Israel go and be free. And as they're leaving, if you remember, God commands the Egyptians to give the Israelites this silver and gold and food and possessions, everything that they would need to be able to survive and to prosper and more. And you can imagine how the Israelites must have felt at this point. God is finally redeeming us. God is finally saving us. God is finally making true on his his promises. He's blessing us. And as they're fleeing from Egypt, God miraculously parts the Red Sea, allows the Israelites to cross on dry ground, but then he closes the waters in on the Egyptians, eliminating Israel's enemy. And the Israelites, they're probably thinking, yes, God is protecting us. God is doing everything that he said he was going to do. And to top it all off, God begins to lead them to the promised land that he swore to Abraham he's making good on all his promises. It seems as if the story has now moved from the next movement, from fall to redemption. But now, if you remember the story, does that period of redemption last very long? No, it doesn't. Again and again, the Israelites quickly fall in several ways. They grumble and complain against God for making them travel through the wilderness in harsh conditions. They make an idol of a golden calf, and they bow down, and they worship it, and they fall back into sin. And for the next 40 years, God punishes their sin by making them wander aimlessly through the wilderness. And he's told them that an entire generation would pass before they would ever enter the promised land. And in this movement of the story, we see the narrative flip-flop back and forth between fall Fall and redemption, fall and redemption. The people are led astray from worship of God and enslaved by Egypt. Okay, that's the fall. God sends them a prophet in the person of Moses to show them the way, and the people are freed from Egypt. Redemption. They complain about their provisions. Fall. God provides manna and quail. Redemption. The Israelites disobey God out of ignorance of his commands. Fall. And God calls Moses up onto Mount Sinai and creates a new covenant with him, giving him the Ten Commandments. Redemption. God's people create an idol and worship it and are forbidden from the promised land, fall, and unable to atone for their sins themselves and regain relationship with God. He gives them Aaron, a high priest, to intercede for them and atone for their sins. Redemption. Back and forth. But then, after Moses dies and a generation passes, God raises up a new leader for the people of Israel. He's a man who comes in the form of something like a king, and his name is Joshua. And the narrative then moves into a new sequence of redemption. God uses Joshua to lead the Israelites to the promised land, and they quickly find out that the land that they are to inherit is inhabited by their enemies, the Canaanites. So Joshua, in very king-like fashion, he leads the charge against the Canaanites. They're inhabiting the land that God has promised them, and they conquer their enemies, and at last, the promised land is theirs. Now just take a step back and imagine for a moment. Try to put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites, okay? This all took place over a span of time lasting about 850 years. 
from the time God made a promise to Abraham to the time that Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land. And over that 850 years, the Israelites suffered both immense seasons of trial and tribulation, but also seasons of relative ease and peace. But they had not seen the fulfillment of everything that God had promised. For 850 years, the people of God clung to the hope that God would be true to them and God would come through for them, that he would keep his promises. And as soon as it seemed like God was miraculously doing something and showing up, something would happen and they'd be back in the throes of pain and sorrow. This happened over and over and over and over again, back and forth, back and forth, suffering and ease, suffering and ease, fall and redemption fall and redemption can you imagine how tired the Israelites were the sense of anticipation the never ending longing for peace the constantly nagging question of when Lord is this going to happen but then the moment comes And the promised land is theirs. They divide the land up between the 12 tribes and they split their spoils and possession amongst one another. And then at the very end of Joshua chapter 21, we read this amazing passage of scripture that captures perfectly for us how the story had moved into the final movement of restoration. It says, thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. So in Advent, we recount stories like this. We, re- we relive these stories and we try to place ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites and we're reminded that we too, if we do that, we're caught in this perpetual cycle of fall, redemption, fall, redemption, fall, redemption, rinse and repeat. And we are awaiting our restoration, the second coming, the second advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now it takes a really dishonest person to say that that cycle is not true of themselves. It takes a really dishonest person to say that they're not caught in this seemingly never-ending cycle of fall and redemption. We sin and then we repent and ask for forgiveness. We sin and we repent and ask for forgiveness. It's an exhausting cycle, is it not? Then why do we do this? ourselves. Look, we all know what we should do. We all know the right thing that we should do. There's not a single one of us that doesn't know. The problem is that we don't do it. And it's a problem that is inherent within us and stems from an understanding of the story that we find ourselves in and a lack of trust in God's promises. And when we don't trust in God's promises, then the only other alternative that we are left to trust in is a lie. You see, no one of us in this room sins out of a duty, okay? I mean, Lord willing, you're not sitting there thinking, okay, what is it today? Sunday, it's 1131, I'm going to sit through this sermon, I'm going to go home, I'm going to scream at my spouse, be mean to my kids, and oh yeah, I've got that 9 o'clock appointment tonight to watch pornography, I better not be late for that. Nobody does that, at least, man, I really hope you don't. If you do, come talk to me, you've got issues, we need to get that worked out, but... We sin because we have set aside the promises of God and we've bought into a lie that whatever it is that we are about to give ourselves to will satisfy us. But when has that satisfaction ever lasted? When has giving in to sin ever truly fulfilled you? We all know the answer to that question. It hasn't. It hasn't and it never will. But we still keep giving ourselves to it. So this leads to my first point that we have lost our way. We have lost our way. David Noggle, 
He wrote a, a fantastic book. It's called Reordered Love, Reordered Lives, Learning the Deep Meaning of Happiness. And in, this, he's, in the book, he says this, ignorance and disordered love are two of the primary consequences of humanity's fall into sin. Ignorance and disordered loves are two of the primary consequences of humanity's fall into sin. Because we've fallen into sin, we are ignorant as to the way that we should go. And our ignorance leads us to believe lies, which causes us to love things that we shouldn't, which leads us to despair and sorrow. And St. Augustine spoke about this a lot, and he insisted that our ability to be set free from temptation to sin is found in retraining our hearts to love and find joy in things other than sin. So uh, Augustine understood that mankind, all of us in this room, we are on a quest for happiness, but we look for it in all of the wrong places. And it's trying to find happiness and joy in all these wrong places that has led to our restlessness and feeling like we are lost in this world and we don't know where to go. Augustine said that there were three kinds of unhappy people. Here's the first one. The person who cannot have what he loves, whatever it may be. Now that one's kind of self-explanatory. You just cannot be happy if you do not have what your heart deeply desires. You can't. Augustine says that this person seeks what he cannot obtain and he suffers torture. Because he's constantly seeking, he's constantly striving, he can never attain what his heart truly wants, and he suffers torture. The second person is this, the person who has what he loves, but it is hurtful to him. This one kind of expands off the first person. Say that that first person found the thing that he really wanted, but that thing was hurtful to him. You can't be happy if your deepest desires are ultimately destructive to you and those around you. And I would say that this is probably the case for most of us, that what we deeply desire and long for isn't really that constructive and helpful to us. And of this person, Augustine says that he has what is in actuality not desirable and is cheated. He loves something and he gets it, but it hurts him. It's not what he thought it was, and he feels cheated. The third person is this, the person who does not love what he has, even though it is good. And this person lives kind of an incredibly ironic life, does he not? He has what it takes to be happy, but he doesn't care a thing about it. Instead, he's convinced that there's something else out there that's going to satisfy him. He scoffs at the filet mignon and he craves the dollar store beef jerky. And of this person, Augustine says, he does not seek what is worth seeking and is diseased. He has what's worth seeking, but instead he seeks what is not worth seeking. And this person is a diseased person. And that's what we are, tortured, cheated, diseased, people who aren't happy because we lack what we love or we love what we shouldn't or we don't love what we should. We have lost our way in this life. So Augustine's answer was to conjure up a fourth person. He says, I find then a fourth case where the happy life exists and that is when that which is man's chief good is both loved and possessed. When you love what is best for you and you possess that together, that's where happiness is found. But how do we find this? How do we go about searching for this? Where can this mysterious chief good be found and how can we possess it? I have three promises from the word of God that I want to share with you that I believe will help us. Um, because lucky for us, God made us a promise that he would send us a prophet to show us the way to this chief good. Just like he gave the prophet Moses to Israel, he has promised us an even greater prophet. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And then in both Acts 3.22 and Acts 7.37, Jesus is confirmed to have been this prophet that Moses was speaking of. Jesus 
Jesus was the one who came to show us the way. This is the first promise that you need to cling to this Advent season. That Jesus Christ is the prophet sent from God to show us the way. Jesus Christ is the prophet sent from God to show us the way. He is the one who has shown us what is good, what we should love, and what we should pursue. Now, the, the, the wonder of Advent is that it is a reminder to us that at our point in the story, we exist in a time when Jesus has gone before us, showing us the way to true happiness and joy. He has shown us how to break the cycle of endless letdowns and constant disappointments and nagging anxiety and crippling depression that comes with pursuing the things of the world and never finding satisfaction in them. God did not see fit to just leave us wandering aimlessly through this life, pursuing whatever we would. He has not left us on our own to figure this thing out. He has had compassion upon us, and he has sent us a messenger to show us the way to true life and to true joy. Just like the Israelites followed their prophet Moses, our prophet Jesus has issued an invitation for us to follow him as well. And we find this in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and I'm lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just like we read in Joshua 21 that God gave the Israelites rest on all sides. Jesus promises to give us rest. Rest that pervades even into the deepest part of who you are. Rest for your soul. Do you think that you have ever truly experienced calm and unhurried rest in your soul? Do you want to? Because Jesus said that we can have this, that if we take his yoke upon us and we learn from him, and there's many things that we can learn from Jesus, but there's one thing that I think that we should learn from him if we are to enter into this rest. It's a very simple statement that he made that helps us to reorder our loves, reorder our lives, and to find the happiness and joy that we so desperately seek. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us that the cure to our anxiety and our restless pursuits is to seek first the kingdom of God and all of these other things, happiness, provision, calm, peace, security, love, communion with God, you name it. Seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added to you. In all of our wandering, our searching, our experimenting, our trying, our testing, looking, eating, traveling, buying, making, smoking, drinking in all of our pursuits it's really the kingdom of God that we are looking for and we know this because when Jesus prays in his famous prayer your kingdom come he clarified what he meant by that by saying your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Seeking the kingdom of God is seeking the presence of heaven, the presence of God in the here and now. Seeking his perfect will in our lives, a will that desires for us to delight in him and to find our joy in making much of him forever. To seek first the kingdom of God is to seek paradise. And Jesus promises that we can find it right here, right now, even in this very moment. If we make the kingdom of God our first priority, our first love, then like Augustine said, we will possess what we so strongly desire and we will truly be happy. The narrative of our lives will begin to transition from one of fall to redemption. But of course, there's got to be a hiccup along the way, right? Always is in this life. Every single one of us who has walked this way of Jesus knows that there is something that is especially true, that we never walk this way perfectly. Yes, following the, the way of Jesus, making the kingdom of God a priority, it will help you. 
move from fall to redemption and bring you joy and peace and rest like he promises. But the allure of sin is always there. And there are times when pursuing the kingdom of God will require sacrifices of you that you do not want to make, like cutting off a hand or gouging out an eye or selling all of your possessions or leaving behind the dead to bury their own dead, forsaking your family, giving up your ambitions and your dreams for the sake of this kingdom. And we don't want to do these things. Our willpower to do them is conspicuously lacking across all of humanity. And when we don't do these things, when we don't do what the kingdom of God has required of us, then the kingdom of God is relegated and and subjugated to something that is far more inferior, right? And we have found it, we find ourselves falling backwards in the narrative, back into the fall. We find ourselves in the position of the third man that Augustine described earlier, that we have access to the very thing that we are supposed to love, but we don't love it. And like Augustine said about that man, this shows us that we are diseased people. And this disease is called sin. It permeates every single bit of who we are. It's what keeps the narrative of our lives returning from redemption back to fall. It's the thing that convinces us that the promises of God are not worth trusting and convinces us to trust in a lie instead. And because of our sin, we stand utterly condemned before God, dead and hopeless and unable to do anything at all to save ourselves. But here's the thing. We are required by God to do something about it. We are required and demanded by God to be absolutely perfect if we are to know true joy. We must make amends for every single sin that we have ever committed against God if we are to truly escape our repetitive fall redemption pattern and find restoration. And throughout the millennia of human history, so many people have tried to do this for themselves. They've tried to conjure up something within themselves to offer to God in return for their blasphemy and their hatred of Him, and it has never worked out. I'm sure that you've probably done it. I mean, I've done it. If you have ever said, hey, you know what, I'm really a good person, then that's what you're doing. You're offering your own goodness to God to make atonement for everything wrong that you've ever done. And you know you're not good. Or maybe you've measured your own behavior against Adolf Hitler and you've just considered yourself okay. If so, then you have fallen into the trap of thinking that you are incurably affected by the disease of sin in a way that is completely and utterly beyond your capacity to remedy. But remember, remember, our friends, the Israelites. God knew that an ongoing relationship with a sinful people would require ongoing atonement for the sins that they've committed against him. So he instituted the sacrificial system and gave them a high priest named Aaron to make sacrifices of atonement for them. God provided a way for them to move from a position of fallen to redeemed through sacrifices. And in the same way, God promised us in Psalm 110, verse 4, that he would send us a high priest forever. A high priest who would never stop interceding for us, who would never stop pleading our case before God, and who would offer a sacrifice to God that would satisfy his wrath against our sin forever. And that high priest is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And this is the second promise that you need to cling to in Advent, that Jesus Christ is the promised high priest who takes away our sins. Jesus Christ is our promised high priest who takes away our sins. You see, the problem with the old priesthood was that the priests themselves kept dying. So that should have been an indication to them that what they were doing wasn't actually working. You know, if the wages of sin is death, right, but sin had supposedly been atoned for through the sacrifices of these men, then why were the high priests 
the most holy of men in Israel, the ones who were granted access into the Holy of Holies to behold the glory of God, why were these men still dying? It's because, as the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10.4, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But this is not true of the blood of Jesus. Listen to this explanation of Jesus' priestly reign for us. This is also from the author of the book of Hebrews in chapter 7. He says this, Now there have been many other priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely, or as another translation would say, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly befits us, one who is holy, innocent, undefiled, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for sins once for all when he offered up himself. You see, this is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to us long ago. Listen, God did not look at you in your filth, in your wickedness, in your refuse, in the muck of your obscenity, and choose to turn his head away from you. No, God chose to cover all of your sin, all of your unrighteousness, everything that makes you vile and depraved and wicked, everything inside of you that stirs up the wrath and the anger of God, he chose to wash you clean from all of your iniquity by the blood of his own holy, innocent, and undefiled son. He poured the blood of the holy upon the unholy. And he washed the guilty with the blood of the innocent. He mixed the blood of the undefiled son with the corrupt repulsiveness of defiled mankind. And Jesus came out on the other side of that exchange with glory and holiness and righteousness to spare. His splendor is inexhaustible, and God has promised that splendor to you long before you were ever even born. <laughs> this is the kindness of God that He has shown us the way to end our longing through our prophet Jesus, and He has provided a way for that longing to never be spoiled again by our great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. Both of these remedies, both of these offices of Jesus promised long ago. But we still face one final threat, and that is the threat of the enemy. For the Israelites in the story that we read, that, that enemy was the Canaanites. And a detail that I left out of that story when I told it was that when God led the Israelites into the promised land, when they were in a state of redemption, they sent out scouts to survey the land, and all, when they laid their eyes upon the enemy, all the scouts came back and they were terrified. They, they doubted God's ability to bring them victory over the enemy. It just seemed way too great. They had fallen back into a state um, of fall again. And now our enemy has the ability to afflict, inflict us with the same fear. We could be on the cusp of the promised land, on the very edges of paradise, and one glimpse of the enemy can just send us cowering in fear, distrusting God's ability to preserve us and to keep us. Now for Israel, God gave them a warrior. He was a king-like figure named Joshua, and he led the charge to take hold of what was rightfully theirs, to move forward the narrative from fall to redemption. And God has promised to give us the same. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised that a king would come after David who would lead God's people into righteousness. He says, and, and this is God speaking to David, he says, and when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
The prophet Isaiah picks up on this prophecy, on, on this promise that God had made, and what's probably a very well-known Christmas passage to you if you've been kind of doing this for a while. Um, uh, it comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. This is what the prophet Isaiah said. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from that time and forevermore. And the angel Gabriel, whenever he came and announced the birth of Jesus to Mary and Joseph, he confirmed that Jesus Christ was the one who would fulfill that spot as king on his throne. When he told them in Luke chapter one, he said, his name will be Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus is our promised prophet who shows us the way. He is our promised priest who atones for our sins. And now the third promise that we need to cling to this Advent season is this, that Jesus is our promised king who defeats our enemies. Jesus is our promised king who defeats our enemies. And look and behold what he has done. This is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, do you see how amazing that is? That it was through death. Jesus' death on the cross that he destroyed the one who has the power of death, the devil. He used his own weapon against him and conquered him. By covering all of our sin and dying for us on the cross and rising from the grave, Jesus has effectively defanged the enemy because he can no longer accuse you or accuse us of anything at all whatsoever. He can no longer make a case for your death penalty because the judge himself has acquitted us by offering his own life in our place. Our warrior king has defeated the devil and he has no power over us whatsoever. But even more, it says that Jesus our king has delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And Paul says it this way, O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, hell, where is your victory? There is none, because Christ our King has set us free. Jesus Christ, our King, has vanquished all of our enemies, and we can stand now in this life fearless of what may come. Because if we do not need to fear the enemy, if we do not need to fear hell, and if we do not need to fear death, then do you know what that makes us? Free. We are free. We are free to take our eyes off of ourselves, to take our eyes off of our sin, to take our eyes off of the world and everything that it wants to offer us and place them firmly upon the hope of our salvation. We are free to trust the one who has kept true on all of his promises. We are free to not believe the lie that he is untrustworthy, but we are free to believe that he will do everything that he has said that he will do. We are free to position the narrative of our lives firmly and confidently in the movement of redemption, trusting that our perfect prophet, priest, and king will keep us firm until we can all together enjoy the conclusion to this incredible story, the restoration the restoration of our bodies, our souls, and the world. The restoration of all that has gone wrong in the world. The restoration of our perfect union and fellowship with God forever. And I don't know about you, but I long for this. 
I hope that you do too because you know a place of longing and a place of waiting, a place of anticipation. It's not a bad place to be. You're actually in really good company. Matthew 24, 36 says this. This is Jesus speaking. This is Jesus speaking about his second coming. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Not even Jesus knows the day that he's going to return. So even now, Jesus, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, is awaiting the day of his return. He is sharing with us in our longing. He shares in our desire to be united with him. He feels the ache of separation from his bride, meaning just as much as you long for him, he longs for you. Jesus shares in Advent with us. That's a good Savior. You know, 2 Corinthians one twenty says that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That he is the, fulfill- the fulfillment of every single thing that God has ever promised that he would give us. So what that means then is that apart from Jesus Christ, you will not know the end of your suffering. You will not know the end of your searching. You will not know the end of your longing, the end of your wandering. You will not know the end of your anticipation. You will not be able to lay claim and to lay hold on the thing that you desire the most. You will not be able to find it. All of the promises of God find their yes in Him. He is the treasure that you are to pursue. He is the one that you are to search for and to long for and to desire. And all of these promises that God made, they'll be yes for you only if you say yes to Him. He has called you and He has invited you to come and to enjoy the rest that He offers. In this Advent, as we wait and as we long, as we anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus, that waiting and that longing, that anticipation, that anxiousness, it can subside just a little bit if you grasp on to the hope that Jesus offers. Would you pray with me?